Let me pray for us. Fathers, we just had the joy of singing. Uh, those of us who know that joy of what we were singing, the reality of that, that you are our salvation, that there is times of doubt, times of fear, and yet uh, you are a refuge. You cause each promise of your word to flower, to, to bloom for us, your people, God. Not because of our goodness, but because of yours. Not by our power, but because of yours. So we praise you, thank you, and pray for your help as we look to your word, that we may rejoice in your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Can turn to Psalm 56. We're in Psalm 56. Um, I think Psalm 99 was picked due to the the songs we were singing. Um, I think I might have preached on Psalm 99. So if that piqued your curiosity and you want to know more about it, go to the website and see if you can find it. And if I'm wrong, let me know, and maybe that'll make it on the list for next time. Uh, I wonder when the last time was that you were really afraid. Uh, not just afraid, like you know, you read a book and you you get the feeling of fear or you watch a movie and you get the feeling of fear talking like genuine terror afraid right like something really bad is going on or at least it seems like that and you are fearful it could be something as simple i mean because this kind of there's a sliding scale here right based on what we think our strength is so you know as a kid it could be going to a new school you're going into sixth grade you're going into ninth grade right It it could be something like that which could be terrifying depending on the particular child uh, perhaps you've had em- enemies at work, people gunning for your job or something like that. And uh, there was a time that was terrifying in that scenario. Perhaps it's persecution for sharing the gospel. Uh, that could happen here. It could certainly happen in other contexts. We could think of Christians facing all sorts of terror of uh, different regimes. You could think of um, various times in, in some of the communist bloc over there. You can think of the stories that came out of the, the gulags and other things over there. There certainly are times of fear in um, per, in sharing the gospel, persecution. Uh, perhaps a violent attack or threatened violence. Perhaps that has been your experience. Perhaps a court setting, a uh, courtroom, where there were uh, a case you were involved with with big consequences for you. Perhaps a medical emergency for you or a loved one. We could keep going on. You can probably come up with fears. If you thought of a fear when I mentioned that earlier, you probably had something that popped into your mind. Well, the Psalms run the gamut of joys and sorrows. And we're not surprised by that because this is where God's people live in in a world that is fallen and broken. So there are many things to be sorrowful about, right? But in which God rules and his children know he rules, right? Now, but, but the reality is what we see in the Psalms is both those realities get lived out just like it does in your experience. Now, the Psalms are more than just your experience and my experience. This isn't just like, it's not like some sort of self-help book, right? It really puts on display God's faithfulness in redeeming a people for himself. When you, when you track through the Psalms, you see how much of it points to the king, specifically David, but then really the ultimate king that would come. That's what you track through in the Psalms. Uh, you, you look at Psalm 1, you, you have the, who is the blessed man who's going to receive, blessed man, blessed woman who's going to receive God's wisdom from the Psalms, the person who fears God, right? And then Psalm 2, God has set his king on his throne, right? And, and so the rest of the Psalms is really just fleshing all that out. Fear fear God, live in the fear of him. His king sits on the throne and you're going to have a lot of joys and sorrows. And and so in many ways, it expresses this whole gamut of experience. And Psalm 56 deals with a a theme of fear. And it's kind of a hybrid psalm in terms of its um, composition in the sense that it is both in the genre of lament 
uh, and thanksgiving. And oftentimes you see those two things will actually go together in the Psalms. Uh, There's something to be sorrowful over, in this case, fear and danger. And and yet there's also thanksgiving because God rules and reigns. And so that's what we see in Psalm 56. And the theme really comes out in a place like verse three. I'll just read that for you. Uh, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. So if you're going to summarize this psalm, that would probably be a good verse to do it. There's a couple other verses that would summarize it well, but that's a good one to summarize the theme of this psalm. In verses 3 and 4 and 10 and 11, when I read it, you're going to see this is, this is kind of the chorus of the psalm. Those two past sections in there, verses 3 and 4 and 10 and 11. And, and what they repeat several ideas there. They repeat the idea of fear. You see that repeated in those sections. And the idea of trusting in God. And so both those things get repeated. So that's what the psalm is dealing with, facing fear with faith. It was written during a time in David's life, um, or at least reflecting on a time in David's life of extreme danger and fear. And uh, you might find as we go through this that you can't really relate exactly to what David has experienced, um, but we still, nonetheless, we need to know what God says about dealing with fear. Because why? You live in a fallen world you will experience fearful circumstances. That is going to happen. And and so God gives us David's experience. Um, Even though David, yes, David is unique. He is the king of Israel. He does play a unique role in redemptive history. It's recorded to show us that God delivers his king, which you picture, you see that, that fulfilled in the person of Christ, right? Christ comes as the king. He has enemies surround him. He's crucified and he is raised, right? Um, Well, because Christ has been raised, we're going to be raised with him if we're his people. So that's really our hope, and that's how this tracks into the New Testament for us. Um, But we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. We want to see that there are real enemies, real illnesses come, fear is part of a fallen world, but so is God's faithfulness, right? Fear is real, so is God's faithfulness. Danger is real, so is God's faithfulness. And so that's what we see in this psalm. So let me read Psalm 56, and, and you listen for repeated words or ideas. I'll read the superscription because that is, in fact, part of the psalm. To the choir master, according to the dove of far off terebinths, a mitcom of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings, Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back. In the day when I call, this I know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before the Lord in the light of life. So as I read through that, you probably picked up on some repeated words or at least ideas. There's a lot of they, them talk. We're talking about attackers, oppressors, 
those who would seek to do harm. You see that over and over again throughout this psalm. You see God mentioned over and over again through this psalm, which again is what is so unique. Is poets can express sorrows of life pretty well. You could read a secular poet and they can express a lot of terrible things that happen in life. What's unique about the Psalms, and I would say should be unique about us as Christians, as we, if you write poetry or songs or whatever, is that God is in the equation. Now, it is interesting, you find in Psalm 88, that's the one Psalm that actually you don't really see much light in. But I, and I think I preached on that before a long time ago. You can go back and listen to that. But even there, we find some hope in God. So the Psalms also take into account that this, things can get real dark for Christians. It's not just unbelievers who can, things can get real dark for. But, but the point is in the Psalms, you see God all over the place. And this should be the mark of his people, that when we experience these realities, we do not deny them. We don't just pretend, well, you know, hey, things are okay. But we, we, we don't deny the fact that God is with us. God is in the midst of it. His name appears nine times in this Psalm, at least. What can flesh do to me appears over twice, uh, twice in here as well. So again, the theme is there's a lot to be afraid of. There's attackers, there's enemies, but David keeps his mind focused on God, right? Now we have to get there though. We don't, we don't want to jump over it. So, so the danger in, in preaching poetry is we can jump straight to the conclusion, which is God is with us, which I just did, right? And then we, we forget all the, man, but in your experience, there are times where you feel like he's not. And so the Psalms capture that too. So I don't want to forget that. So as we go through this Psalm, we're going to go straight through it the way it's written because it is kind of written as a song. And I want you to be able to make this, um, the chorus, your chorus, the refrain, your refrain. Um, and so part of that is we're going to let it unfold the way it unfolds. I, I was tempted to, to do it all uh, and, uh, um, um, just, just real like logically and group it, the themes together. I think there's a place for that. But uh, I'd rather just read through it and go straight through it. So it's going to be a little bit more kind of back and forth but I think that gives you, this is what God intended to communicate to us. Life is like this. You're going to feel this back and forth as you go through it. And yet there can be a, a refrain, this repetition of trust in the middle of it all. Okay? So the outline is, that I have then is, is pretty long. I'll just mention it. Uh, and this is just basically the way the psalm lays out more so than a logical flowing of it. And so you can write this down if you want. It's kind of long. I don't think you necessarily need to. But you see a fearful situation in verses 1 and 2. The chorus of trust comes up in three and four. Then you have what they, the enemies, are doing. That's going to happen in five and six. Then what God is doing in seven through nine. And then the chorus of trust again, looking to God in verses at the end of nine through 11. And then a resolve. And this is what I will do, David says. So it's kind of, you kind of have this, you know, um, what they're doing, what God's doing, what I'm going to do in response. That's kind of the way it does tend to, to flow in terms of the psalm. So let's begin by looking at the fearful situation in verses 1 and 2. Uh, we have this superscription up above there, and that is, um, that is part of the psalm. We don't always know what all those words mean. Some of them were probably specific to the, the person leading the music for Israel when they were singing it, probably had certain meanings. Uh, it might be set mood. It might have set tempo at times, like mitcom. We don't know what that means. Um, the whole thing with the dove, we don't know what that means. Is it something about like you, the mood is being set with this idea of a dove in a far-off tree? Is it something about the, the rhythm? I don't know, okay? We don't know, so... Sorry, we just don't know. But it's there, it's part of it. Now, what we, what we do know, though, is when you read of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath, we do know what that is referring to. So uh, turn to 1 Samuel, hold your hand in Psalm 36, turn to 1 Samuel 21. Um, so David has been selected by God, he's been anointed by God through the prophet Samuel to be king of Israel. Now, who is sitting on the throne, though, at that time? Saul. Saul is sitting on the throne, and Saul has been, um, he's been, God has said, you, you have not feared me, 
and you will not rule over my people. So, so God has, has already told Saul, you're not going to continue to be king. David is going to be king. And, um, and so Saul hates David. So, I mean, maybe you've been hated by somebody in your life. I mean, and maybe it was even as bad as this, but Saul has tried to kill David a couple times, right? He tried to throw a spear at him to pin him to the wall a couple times. And, uh, and so this happened a couple times. And just prior to this section, um, Saul has, has made a big scene in, in kind of a banquet hall with his son because his son was like, no, my dad's not going to kill you, right? And so they, they work out this elaborate scheme where he's going to let David know. So David's absent uh, from, the, from the feast. And then Saul finds out, and he kind of finds out that Jonathan's covering for him, which is Saul's son. And so he just, I mean, it's just probably the most embarrassing scene, right, if you're his son. He just like lets loose about all these things about how David is his worst enemy and bring him here so I can kill him. So now we have a public just laying it all out there. I am at odds with David and I'm going to kill him. And he's the king. This is Saul. He has the ability to do this um, in terms of no one's really going to stop him, humanly speaking. So David is on the run. Talk about a fear-inducing situation. He fled. Um, remember when he fled right before this, you would have read about how he goes to, to kind of where the priest is ministering and the priest doesn't know what's going on. And what we find from that is David has no food he has no weapons, right? Because he says, I need, I need a sword. And the priest's like, well, we got Goliath's sword. So keep that in the back of your mind. He's got Goliath's sword. That's the one thing he gets there. He doesn't seem to have anybody really with him. He does mention some other guys and maybe they're with him there. But it's, if there are, it could just be that he's saying, yeah, I got some guys that are out further along just to not raise suspicions. I don't know. Um, if he does have people with him, it's not a lot. Because what you find is after the scene we're going to read, so spoiler alert, David gets out of this. But after this scene, he ends up in a cave and there 400 men come to join him. And they are like the worst of the worst in society. They're just all the outcasts. They have a bunch of debts they don't want to pay. So this is, you know, hey, a new regime. That's the way to deal with this, right? Um, anyway, David is, what I'm trying to say is David is in a bad spot. He's in a really bad spot. And so out of desperation, he flees to the land of the Philistines. Look at uh, verse 10 of 1 Samuel 21. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, uh, the king of Gath. So who are the Philistines? Well, they're not exactly friends. They are the people, God said, one of the groups that they should be removed from the land. They have uh, been pretty wicked in many ways. And so they are Israel's enemies. Israel has been fighting with them. Um, so David is in, a, in between a rock and a hard place here. And he's got a very good reason to fear. Look at the next verses, verse 11. And the servants of Achish said to him, so, so some of the servants of the king of the Philistines here, they come up and they say, is not this David the king of the land? Do they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Okay, so Gath is the hometown, was the hometown of the hometown hero Goliath. Do you remember who killed Goliath? David killed Goliath, right? Um, and, and in fact, they're right. They're, all Israel is singing these songs. This is part of what makes Saul so jealous is all these people are singing these songs about how David, Saul, you've done some great things. David, better, right? I mean, that's kind of what's going on. And so they, they are aware of these songs and they say, they, they kind of recognize them from maybe a wanted poster hanging up somewhere in Gath. I don't know. They recognize maybe this is David. Um, no, the point is that they probably really, it's hard to recognize people, but they, they kind of get the suspicion that's who he is. Um, and so uh, David uh, has what? He has... Saul and his army seeking him in Israel. They're bordering the Philistines. So he goes into to the Philistines and they want him dead. You see what I'm saying? He really has nowhere to go. 
Um, now, why he exactly went to Gath, I don't know. Maybe there were different places. Who knows? There's so many reasons he could have ended up in Gath, but he ends up in Gath, and thus he is much afraid is what we see. So um, keep your hand in 1 Samuel. We're going to come back to that for just one, in one more minute, but go back to Psalm 56 because that's the scene that we find David in. And this is what he says in Psalm 56, verses 1 and 2. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. So right out of the gate, David goes straight to the throne room. He, this is like a 911 prayer, right? Oh God, be gracious to me. And then he just starts spewing out the difficulty he's in. This is not a nice, comfortable bedside prayer. Right? David's just kneeling down beside his bed with the candle going, and he's just, you know, Lord, please deliver me from my enemies. And um, he, is, he is wanted. People want to kill him. On, no matter where he turns, that's kind of his experience right now. Now, there's, now, most of our Christian prayers are those bedside prayers. In fact, that probably prepares you for a prayer like this, doesn't it? Uh, but it's not wrong to pray like this, right? Oh, God, please help. And then you just dump it all out right in front of him, Right? Now, we, we still should be humble. I mean, he is the God of the universe. This, this is not licensed to just go um, blame him for everything that's going wrong in your life. He is good in all his ways. We need to be respectful, humble, and trusting when we pray. But he's not surprised by the suffering. We can lay that out for him in detail. And David does that. And so this 911-style prayer goes up. Then David paints his situation with rapid brushstrokes. Uh, the same way fears cause your mind to race, it's kind of like that's what's going on with David. It's like these real quick brushstrokes to paint what's going on. And you see him say things like, man tramples on me. This is the idea of they're in hot pursuit. It's the idea of like a pack of dogs chasing someone down. They are panting after me. They are, they are following me with uh, a hunger to devour me. Uh, they attack this is the idea of, of war and fighting. They're ready to fight with me. Um, they are many. Spurgeon points this out. I think this is helpful. He says, persecutors hunt in packs. So he feels like he's surrounded by a pack of wolves. They are attacking me. And then he says, it's all day long. Perhaps you've experienced that with your fears or difficulties where it's, it's not just a one and done. It's a, there's a persistent case of situation for fear. It seems to be ongoing. It seems to continue. It's like waves that just continually pound the shore during a hurricane. It's one after another, after another, after another. That seems to be what David is experiencing here. So he jumps out of the frying pan with Saul and into the fire with the Philistines, and that's the situation he is in. He's in this dire situation, and, and we have to recognize that if this, if this what he's going to say applies to his situation, it applies to our situation too. Because you might think my situation is not as bad as his. Well, guess what? If it applies to the greater, it applies to the lesser. So that's what you're, you're going to find hope in this psalm. Before getting a glimpse, though, of how the psalm and how, how what we see behind the scenes about spiritually what is going on with David and his struggle, I want to point out one more thing in 1 Samuel that the psalm does not deal with. Um, and this is the idea that uh, when, um, when we're trusting God, it doesn't mean we fail to act. It's, kind of, it's not this either-or thing, right? It's not, well, trust God and then do nothing. That's not, because David, what we see in 1 Samuel is he does act, uh, now, I think the psalm gives us very important information because it tells us what's going on inside of his heart, his, his affections, his trusting, it, where, where is he rooting his hope? And what we're going to see is it's not ultimately what he does that he roots his hope in. Nonetheless, he's wise and cunning. He acts, he thinks. So 1 Samuel 21, 12 through 15, we see that David takes these words to heart. It says in verse 12, 
and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. He has a good reason to be afraid. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So David thinks fast, he acts fast. And so they're like, hey, isn't this the war hero who killed our war hero? And David's like, "Uh uh-oh, right? So what does he do? So in Psalm 56, we see what he does inside. A lot of praying, a lot of God help, right? A lot of trusting in God. But that doesn't mean he doesn't also think, maybe if I act insane, they'll leave me alone. And they did, right? It ends up working. I think ultimately it works because God empowers it to work. But my point is, it's not just this like, trust God or think and do something. It's both. Now our tendency is, right? What's our tendency? Our tendency is, well, I've got to do something. I've got to do something. I've got to do something, right? Or I've got to do it now. It's got to happen now. When, when it might be kind of a, a trust means wait right now, right? We, we need God's spirit working in us to guide us in these things. Okay, so you can, um, you can let go of um, 1 Samuel, unless you've grown overly attached to it. You can let go of it and go back to Psalm 56. And we see that um, ultimately David is trusting God to deliver him. And so we get to the first chorus here in verses 30, or sorry, 3 through 4, the first chorus of trust. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? So we have this idea of uh, the day of fear. That's what, when I am afraid, literally could be in the day of fear, in the moment that I experience fear, the time period I'm experiencing fear. So again, there will be times of fear, just to hammer that point home. So even when David's expressing trust, he's acknowledging it's, it's not, trust is not the absence of fear, right? It's kind of like how, in a similar way, courage is not the absence of fear, right? In fact, you can't exercise courage to some degree without some fearful situation, Courage is, I see what needs to be done, I trust God even though I'm scared, and I do it, trusting God, right? And so you kind of see a similar thing going here. So he's afraid, he's not denying it, but he's not living by those feelings. He feels fear, but he's not going to live by that fear. That's important. So he says, when I'm afraid, what? I put my trust in you. So here we have a conscious decision on David's part to not live by the feeling. When I'm afraid, yes, I'm afraid. But the conscious decision is, I'm not going to live by that, but instead, I will trust in you. That is a conscious um, affirmation. That's like a a, uh, resolved to trust in the Lord, right? Resolution one, trust the Lord even though I feel scared. That's what he's saying. So feelings should not control us. David makes this decision to trust the Lord um, so we can be afraid and choose to trust God. Those can can coexist. They can go together. And then in verse four, he says, in God whose word I praise— uh, if you're going to trust somebody, don't you need to know something about that person? Right? Someone just walked up to you and they're like, hey, trust me, right? Um, if you showed up, you know, and you don't know nothing about hiking and you just show up and you use some sort of, you know, hiking path that's known for all sorts of dangers and I just walked up to you and said, hey, trust me, I'll be your guide. You would make a very poor decision if you followed me, right? Um, because I don't know enough about hiking to get you out of there alive, right? We're just going to go down together is what we're going to do. But so you need to know something about the person you're trusting. And so wh- why do we need to say in God whose word I praise? Because where we, where David has words from God, things that tell him about God, about what God has done, which means he can know something about God's character. 
right? He knows what God has done. He, he can see God's character on display. So he praises God's word and that's where his trust is. So, so trusting God, especially in a fearful situation, the prior commitment to that is a commitment to God's word, right? If I'm not committed to God's word, I'm really not gonna have a good reason to trust him down over here. If I'm kind of wishy-washy over here on God's word and whether I trust it and sometimes I obey it, sometimes I don't, sometimes I think it's good, sometimes I think it's bad, it's not gonna help me over here. Now the Psalms deal with when we're struggling trusting God too. So I mean, it, we, we can have a whole other sermon on how do we grow in that. I'm not saying that we don't experience that. I'm just saying you've got to make that commitment that God, your word is where I'm going to put my trust, what you say. I'm going to do it now so that I'm ready for it in the future too. If you're not trusting it now, what I'm saying is you're not going to magically wake up on a fearful day and then all of a sudden trust it in a real trusting, committed way. Okay? So we, he trusts God here. Um, and for David, this would be all of the Old Testament scriptures he had up to this point, as well as Samuel's words. Samuel had said, the Lord has anointed you to be king. That's what has happened. So David is probably thinking at this point, you promised I would be king of Israel, God. I trust your word. I praise your word. You will deliver me. Now, you might be thinking, but I don't have that promise. God hasn't promised me that. I mean, David has that promise because he's going to be king. He plays a very special role in redemptive history that you and I do not play. We have to be honest about that. It doesn't mean we're not important. It just means we don't play that role. Okay, but, but think about it. Number one, where David did experience these people really wanting to kill him. So it's easy to, to think, well, of course he felt this. I mean, these guys want to kill him. And if he escapes here and he goes back into Israel, Saul wants to kill him right? So he's still having to do what? He's still having to live by faith in what God has said. He hasn't seen the deliverance yet. That's true for you and it's true for me. We have more in common with David than you think. Has God not made promises to you and me, right? He will never leave you nor forsake you. You will safely enter into his kingdom forever, his perfect place under his smiling face forever. God has made many promises to us that we can learn to trust we can trust him in a similar way. And if we do, if we, if we trust in God's word, then we can end up saying, in God, I trust. When we see God's character, we see his promises in his word, we can trust him. And this isn't just the generic person of faith type trust. This is, I know something about God, and so I trust him. I really know something about God, and I trust him. So you know, here's, here's a practical application. If your faith feels very abstract sometimes, so you're, you're in a fearful situation, you're in an anxious situation, and you just feel like there's no way to, to get out of that, Maybe instead of just thinking about all the what I can do to get my mind changed in that moment, you maybe just spend more time getting to know God. Study the attributes of God. Read the Gospels and think about Jesus, who is God in human flesh and what he did. Right? Read these places to get a better picture of God. Read the storyline of the Bible to see what he's done to bring salvation throughout human history, to unfold it over centuries and generations. Read all the way to the book of Revelation and see where he says this whole thing is going, right? That his people will enter into his place and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death and pain and sorrow will be no more. If we keep looking at people around us, if we just keep looking on the situation in front of us, fear will dominate our minds. If that's where we keep our focus. But if we focus on God and his promises, we can say, in God, I trust and mean it. And that's what we need to do. We need to trust in him. And, that, and that's why he can say, what can mere man do to me? The contrast between mere man and God, right? Everlasting God, sovereign God, man who's like grass. You see that in other places in the Psalms. 
That's, that's how he can get to that point where he can say, what can man do to me? Because the answer in one sense is they can do a lot. They could kill him. But God has promised in his case, specifically, he won't die in this situation anyway. But for us, we have many, many promises that God will safely bring us into his kingdom. So we trust those. So this gives them the opportunity to legitimately ask fear, what can you do? And the ultimate answer is nothing because ultimately nothing can separate us from the love of God as his people. So to summarize this chorus, uh, Derek Kidner does it well for us. He says, faith is seen here as a deliberate act in defiance of one's emotional state. That's, that's really what you can get from this chorus. Does David feel afraid? Yes, when I am afraid. He says that. He acknowledges it. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. So, so it's this, I'm going to live in faith regardless of how I feel. I'm not, I'm not waiting for the feeling to change before I start trusting God. Trust is in the middle of the feeling, I'm still trusting him. That's what we're talking about here. And so, you know, I mean, I think especially as, as Western Christians, we have, it has been built into us to live by feelings. I mean, it is, it is just all around us. Even in Christian circles, it is all around us. And we have to be, you know, honest and acknowledge it comes out of us. We, we want, I can do the right thing if I feel comfortable, right? I can trust you, God, as long as things are easy. Um, but we can't live by feelings. We have to live by what he said and what he's done and what he's promised to do. Well, after the chorus, we see that he returns to the theme of enemies in verses five and six. So look at five and six. Um, All day long, they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. Now, if you were paying attention for repeated words, I know I didn't tell you to do that, but if you were, you have noticed they and their appear at least seven times I counted in here. Uh, so the focus is back on what they are doing. So he, there are, in other words, again, we're kind of circling back to, hey, there are good reasons to fear. That's why I said the psalm kind of unfolds with this verse, chorus, verse, chorus a kind of experience of life, right? This, I'm trusting God, but there's reasons to be scared. But I'm trusting you, God, but there's reasons to be scared, right? Um, so it shows up over and over again that we already talked about the all day long. It just keeps coming over and over again. It's, it's like, um, you know, he's in a light uh, field and there's a lightning storm that's lasting all day long. And it's just one bolt of electricity after another. And it's just like, if just one of them hits him, he's dead. That's kind of what he's saying. It's all day long. It is all around me all the time. So he focuses on what they're doing. They injure my cause. That is, they twist my words is probably what's going on there. That's the way the New American Standard translates it. The ESV footnotes, that's a possibility. Um, which is interesting because he's gotten talking about, I trust in your word, and what do they do? They twist my words. So where's his confidence? It's not even in his own words of defending himself. It's ultimately going to be in God's words that he's trusting. They can twist my words. Um, they can torture my words, but I will trust you. Think about how often enemies do that. They, they take your words and they put them kind of in, a, in the torture chamber to try to get what they want out of them. They want to get a confession out of you to say what they want to say so they can show that you're as awful as you really are. And so his enemies are doing that. Verse six, they stir up strife. Uh, they lurk. It's the idea of they're, they're waiting to pounce on me. You watch my steps. The, the word steps there is actually the word heel. So the idea of they're hunting me, they're tracking me. It could also conjure up another passage dealing with the heel in Genesis 3.15, right? The serpent, the seed of the serpent, the serpent will strike the heel of the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, and so it could be pointing to that. And David certainly is functioning as the one pointing to Jesus, right? He is the king that's going to point us in that direction. They waited for his life. So they want to finish him off. They want to kill him. So that's what they're doing. And again, uh, David, uh, while he doesn't, um, 
fix his all of his attention on the horizontal, those horizontal realities are there. That's, that's what you see here. That is true. And so he has good reasons to fear, but he has better reasons to trust God. That brings us to verses 7 through 9. Look at verse uh, 7. For their, so David's going to take this, this complaint to God, and he says, For their crime will they escape in wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. Uh, so it's kind of like the lament he just poured out about all the things they were doing. This is kind of indictment language. It's like he's filing his indictment before the Lord. He's saying, look, I, I'm the king that you have anointed over your people. These are the Philistines you said you were going to remove. Cast down the peoples in judgment. Vindicate me. So he files this indictment before God, and he prays that God would, would deliver him by judging his enemies, uh, which, by the way, is not a wrong prayer to pray that God would judge enemies. Right? I mean, there are psalms that talk about breaking the teeth of the wicked. And what that means is stop their ability to do evil. Stop their ability to harm. That's a good prayer to pray. Now, we, we cannot give in to bitterness when we pray these things. right? We're ultimately committing it to the Lord, recognizing that God is the one who's going to vindicate his people. Um, Philippians 2, you can think of passages like that. But the point is, he brings it to God. And in verses 8 through 9, we start to see that we have, he has really good reasons to trust God. Um, look at, at verse 8. We see the first reason. So I'm going to give you two reasons. One is uh, that God takes note of the suffering of his people. God takes note of the suffering of his people. He says this in verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings or wanderings. It could be either of those words. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? So God keeps count of them. He says, you kept count of my tossings, which is probably the idea of shaking his head with grief, um, wandering, which is kind of a similar idea of this back and forth. is kind of like, I've kind of been everywhere here. I, I feel even somewhat confused about all the places I've been. Um, and perhaps you've experienced that, by the way. Think about when you have a fearful situation. Sometimes you, you feel like there's just, you're just wandering. It's just kind of back and forth, and you don't even know where you were yesterday. It's just so overwhelming. Um, perhaps you, you are, you've been a foster kid. And your life was full of tossings and wanderings or a, ma- a major medical issue. And it, and it was from the moment of diagnosis, it's just a, a cloud settled in around you. And it's from one doctor's visit to the next doctor's visit and back to the other doctor who confirms this, the other doctor who says that's actually not the case. And you just, you go back and forth and you, f- you can't even keep track of all the places you've been. Or a legal battle where from mediation back to court and then to here and then to there. And it's just all over the place. And so what we have here is God knows and he sees and he keeps track of our wanderings. When we're wandering, we're not lost to God. God sees, God knows. God takes count of where his people are. Not only that, he, he cares in this because it says you put my tears in a bottle. He tracks the tears. He registers the sorrows and the tears. And, and this is the, the loving care of a heavenly father, not just the, the kind of clinician taking notes of all the tears for scientific purposes. This is the love of a heavenly father. That's why he's that's why he's collecting these tears. Because he cares. He loves his children. And there will be a day where he will, in fact, wipe away all their tears, Revelation 21 says. Now, don't confuse this with he just, he, he, he feels our sorrow, but there's nothing he can do about it. Because it's not just saying that he hears our cries the way a good sympathetic friend might hear our cries, but is still powerless to do anything. Now, that's a good gift to have a sympathetic friend, to hear our cries and keep track of our sorrows with us. But that's not what's being said here either. God keeps track of our tears because he can do something about them. He cares and he's able to meet that need. If God is just good but not powerful, we don't have any hope. He's both. He's good and he's powerful. 
And so that's where we find our hope here. And that brings us to the second point here related to trusting God, which is he, do, he, takes, he takes note, he cares for the purpose of acting, of doing something for his people. Now for David, this would be deliverance from this danger. Uh, in verse nine, he says this, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. So David is confident that God's gonna respond to his call. Um, he, he, his tears are kept track of by God because what God is gonna do is he's gonna judge these people for the, the pain they're inflicting on his anointed one. Um, you know, you, see, you get an interesting picture of this too in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, it talks about the prayers of the saints and we can even think of their tears and sorrows during this time of tribulation rising up to the altar and, and the, the saints who are up in heaven are saying, you know, God, it's time to bring judgment. When are you gonna bring judgment? And then finally, it says that, that they, this angel goes and he gets, he collects the stuff, the incense, which we were just told was the prayers of the saints, the cries of the saints. And that is what then God dumps on the earth in judgment during that time. So God hears and he responds. Deliverance is not always immediate, but it will be full. There will be full deliverance. And so we can see that in the book of Revelation. Um, Revelation 7 is another passage where you see that. And it talks about how they, his people will hunger no more. They'll thirst no more. They will be delivered uh, because God will be their shepherd. And it says he will guide them to springs of living water. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So if we're going to sum up verses 7 and 9, you can look at the last part of verse 9. He says, this I know that God is for me. That's probably the summary of what's going on here. This is the reason he can trust God. This I know, God is for me. Um, and, and so it, it would be good to memorize a verse like this. Um, when, you, when you get scared, sometimes your thoughts do what? Kind of go around in circles, right? They just keep going around in circles over and over again. It's kind of like the scary go round, right? It's just going around and around and around. We have the chorus here that we're about to get to. And I think this is kind of sort of part of the chorus. We have things like this, that if you memorize this, wouldn't it be better to send your mind around and around and around that instead of just all your fears? So this I know, this is the confidence he has. Uh, he do, we, we don't know the immediate outcome. We don't even know the full scale of the dangers that we face, but we can say with David, this I know. I know one thing. I may not know the full scale of the dangers I face. I may not know the final outcome of the dangers I face, but this I know that God is for me. Uh, if you can turn, if you want, uh, to Psalm 8, or sorry, Re Romans 8. Uh, you can leave your hand here if you want. You don't have to turn to Romans 8, but I'm just going to read a couple of verses out of there because Paul quotes that phrase in Romans 8. And, and he just got done describing in Romans 8 the sufferings that God's people still face. He talks about the, the frustrations and the futility of the fallen world that we continue to live in. And he also has just talked about the fact that God's people are indelibly marked by God as his own. It's that kind of golden chain of salvation. Those, you know, he, he, he called, he predestined, he called, he, he's going to glorify. It goes through that whole thing, that whole chain of salvation. And then he says this in, in Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? What, what are these things? The fact that we suffer and the fact that God has proven he's for us in the gospel. What do we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So, so this is not just kind of like a uh, football team motto, right? Of some like Christian school. Listen, if God is for us, who can be against us? We're going to win. You might not. You might lose that game. That might be 
God is still for you in the loss. That's true, right? God, God is for those who are martyred. They, they lost, humanly speaking, but they gained. They're with him. To, to live is Christ, to die is gain. They're with him. So if God is for us, who can be against us? And then look, look at Romans 8.32. We have even more evidence than David had that God is trustworthy. And I, I don't mean to, to slight all that. I mean, David has a lot to go on. But we have the pinnacle of everything the Old Testament was pointing to. Look at Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, with Jesus, graciously give us all things? The, the, the logic is, if he gave us the most valuable possession, he gave us his son to redeem us, to redeem us from hell and his judgment, how will he withhold what is ultimately good for his people? You see what I'm saying? If God is for us, who can be against us? And as a Christian, we say that with the full picture of Jesus came. He died, he rose again. That's where our hope ultimately is. Now this is true only for those who trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The only way you can say God is for me is if you're in Christ. You can, you can like all the stuff I'm saying about how we can handle fear in this way, but it might... You have no reason to hope if you don't have Christ unless you will repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. He is the ultimate judge. In fact, there's something worse than all of your worst fears, which is falling into God's judgment, thinking you did it your way. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God if we are not right with the living God. He is a good judge. And you want that. You want him to judge evil. The problem is, you're evil and I'm evil. Because the, the mark of evil is not what all the people around me are doing. It's God. God is perfect. We are rebellious against God. But the hope is, for you, even this day, the hope is, if you will turn away from, hey, I'm king of my life to I need a savior who will deliver me from all my fears and ultimately the biggest fear is the judgment of God and, he will, and, and think about it this way, there's always a flip side to a fear. So if you're, if you're really trusting in Jesus, it's not just fire insurance. What you actually would be saying is, I don't want to be under your wrath because I want your love. Your love is better than life, God. I want you. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be one of God's people. So David says, if God is for me, who can be against me? And that is our hope as well. So I, I would encourage you to memorize that. Well, then he goes into the chorus again, the rest of the chorus. In God, this is verse uh, 10. So we're back in, in Psalm 56. Verse 10, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? So he repeats this, the same hope that he has uh, as well. Here we see that repeated with, with the small change if he uses another word, uh, not just God, but Lord, which is Yahweh, God's covenant name. So he's probably reflecting on, God, you've made these covenant promises. You're going to keep these promises. Um, and he sees God's promises and he says, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to trust you. Um, and, and so what we see here really is when it comes to dealing with fear, really the way we as God's people deal with it is we need our perspective to be correct. We, we need to see this. If God's for me, who can be against me? We need to see this in God I trust. I won't be afraid because um, it, it's kind of like this. Let me give you the illustration and then I'll explain how it connects. It, it's kind of like if you grew up in central Florida, right? I, I, I lived there for a while. Um, how many mountains would you see in central Florida, right? Now, as a kid, you might think, I mean, I remember there was a hill on my way to school, elementary school, and I rode my bike and it seemed like a mountain. I mean, I was like, we got to walk this thing, man. You're getting off and you're just pushing because you're just exhausted. That was not a mountain. Right? I thought it was. 
then maybe you, you, you go up to North Georgia and you see some mountains and they are beautiful and they are stunning and you're overwhelmed by them, right? Then you eventually get to take a trip to the Alps. Okay, has anything changed in terms of the actual elevation of any of those places? The elevation remained the same, right? It's not like because you've seen the Alps, the elevation of that big hill on your way to school, you know, is actually either higher or lower. It's the same thing. So when it comes to this, it's like, okay, danger's real. This is, I mean, it really registers on the danger scale. But what do, what do I need? I need a perspective. I need to go from this little tiny mountain to God, right? What, is, what can man do to me? In one sense, the answer is a lot. And if all I have in my perspective is man, I have really good reasons to be afraid because that's a big mountain to me. But when I see that God is like the Alps, that's perspective. I still could be afraid. This still could really hurt. It's still really tired for me to walk, tiring for me to walk up this hill, but God is for me. God is for me. So we need a perspective change when it comes to dealing with our fears. That's why I said we need a bigger picture of God. So let that be your refrain. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can fill in the blank do to me? That needs to be your refrain, Christian. That needs to be your hope. That should be our hope. Matthew 10 would be another good passage to go to. We won't go to it right now, but Matthew 10, verses 28 through 31, he says, uh, don't fear those who can only kill the body. Fear God. God has power over body and soul. And then he goes on and says, God counts the number of hairs on your head, kind of like the tears in the bottle thing. He knows you. God, God cares even for the birds and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from his sovereign care and will. So we have a good reason to trust God who is almighty, who is infinite, who cares about the details. We have good reasons to trust him. So make that your refrain. Make that your hope. So we've seen enemies. We've seen what they're up to. There's good reasons to fear. We've seen God in whom we can trust. We've seen um, that he is trustworthy. And now we see what David says he's going to do in response. And so this is, this is what we should do as we know God is trustworthy. This is the what I will do section of the psalm. Look at verses 12 and 13. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. So um, in verse 12, he gives us this idea of vows and offerings. These are expressions of gratitude to God. He's saying, God, I'm so sure of your deliverance that I, I, I'm going to vow that I, I'm going to praise you for the deliverance that you're going to bring. He's thankful. He's praising God. And that's what we ought to be doing too. So a practical thing I would say here when it comes to thankfulness, because there's, there's, there's two things we see. The first thing is this idea of thankfulness. And, and the first thing I would say is cultivate a way to be thankful to God. Now, one way I found helpful is you can curate thankfulness. You think about a museum person, they curate, I've said this before, this is, you maybe have heard this before, but a, a person in a museum, their job, one person's job is to, cure, well, maybe it's more, but their job is to curate what's going to be on display, which means you kind of catalog things, you figure out what's there, and you display things. Do that with thankfulness. Maybe you get a journal and once a week or once a month, you curate some things that you have to be thankful to God for. So that in, the, in these times of crisis, you can look back on that. You can go into the gallery of thankfulness that you are responsible to curate. I can't curate that for you. And you walk through that gallery and you say, God, I will thank you. I will praise you for this. Maybe it's just, uh, maybe you're not into journaling and writing, but maybe it's just every, every night or every once a week, you have an, an evening time prayer where you go through and you catalog the things in prayer that you have to be thankful to God for. 
But I encourage you to find a way to do that. Find a way to be thankful to God. Um, and and the, the added benefit to that is, I think um, cultivating thankfulness helps you fight off future fears as well. That's not, the, that's not the only reason to do it. You should thank God because he is good and he is worthy of thanksgiving. But the added benefit is it does help fight off future fears. It's kind of like uh, it, it, it hog ties the future fears before they get too far. They, you know, that little calf bursts out and it starts running and it's like, boom, it's right there. It hog ties it, doesn't get very far. The second thing besides thankfulness as we draw to a close is um, we, we recognize and what our response is, I'm going to live life in your presence, God, with a mindful, focused sense that I am living before you, God. And you see that at the end. He says in verse 13, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling. Why? That I may walk before God in the light of life. He wants to walk before God. This is the key difference, by the way, between an unbeliever who receives God's mercy and is delivered for something. Because you recognize, even if you don't believe in God, when he delivers you, it's God who delivered you. It's kind of like how you've heard these, I've heard this atheist once say, look, the problem with being an atheist is I have all the stuff to be thankful for and I have no one to thank, right? That's true. You have people, you know you have things to be thankful for. And God did that even though you, but the difference is, it's that as a Christian, we recognize, we know who this God is, right? We're, we're gonna come back to him and recognize that we are gonna live our life before him. That's the difference. It's not just a, um, hey, thanks for delivering me. I chalk it up to good luck and I move on. It's, man, all of life is before you, God, before the face of God. And so that's what we want to do. The child of God knows that they are delivered so that they can walk before God. You, you are delivered from any immediate trial or danger you face so that you can live before the face of God right here, right now. When you are delivered safely through death into his eternal kingdom, it is so that you will walk in his presence in the fullness of joy forever. And so that is what we are delivered for, that we may walk before God. So fear will cast its shadow, but we can walk in the light of life as this psalm ends. So we know God. We have good reason to trust. And so I encourage you, make Psalm, the end of Psalm 9 through 11, your, memorize this. Make it your refrain so that you can go around and around in your head. And this is what it says. We'll close with this. This I know that God is for me in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Let's pray. God, we make this our prayer. We trust you. In your word, we trust. Your promises are precious to us, God. Help us to be a people that read them, that know them, that cling to them, ultimately so that we can know you and your trustworthy character. We trust in you. What can man do to us? In Jesus' name, amen.